If Gabrielle Chanel's life were a playlist, it would start with the hymns of her childhood and jump to the cabaret that gave her the nickname Coco. Next up, a bel canto aria played on her own grand piano and, of course, the Beatles live in London with jazz and blues and Johnny Halliday and Stravinsky in between. The playlist would close with a song from Coco, the Broadway musical that starred Catherine Hepburn in the title role. Watch the film that explores this eclectic, refined musical journey on InsideChanel.com. We can move away from the hubris of believing we can predict things and then see if we accept that we can't. How do we then negotiate the world? Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. It's no secret that today we live in a world of dizzying, gobsmacking, and ever-intensifying complexity. Everything from the computers we carry in our pockets, to the vaccines fighting the pandemic, to the global networks that underpin our economies, rely on such astonishing labyrinths of complexity that any one element requires a team of experts just to make sense of it. And that's not even to mention the complexity of our natural universe, which only grows more intricate, not less, the more we learn about it. One way to deal with this very confusing state of affairs is to pretend it doesn't exist, or to reach after comforting conspiracy theories as people have since the birth of religion at the dawn of time. The artist Perry Chen prefers to take this complexity head-on, however, to really get in there and wrestle with it, making art that looks at this epistemological phenomenon from all angles. He happens to be particularly well-versed in the complexity of our digitally networked reality, too, since in addition to being an artist, he's also the founder and now chairman of Kickstarter, the hit crowdfunding company that has given rise to countless new inventions and creative projects and distributes more cultural funding than the NEA. Now, Perry has a new exhibition of his art that has just opened at the venerable Nature Mort Gallery in New Delhi called Perpetual Novelty. And as usual, it's all about complexity. He's accompanying the show with a new podcast series on that theme with the first episode of Conversation with Walter Isaacson the great biographer of Steve Jobs, Einstein, and Leonardo da Vinci. To talk about his new body of work, I'm very happy to have Perry Chen on this podcast today. Thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Perry. My pleasure. Well, you recently opened a show of new work at the venerable Nature Mort Gallery in New Delhi, India. Are you in India now? I'm guessing you're not. No, I'm in Paris. I moved out here a year and a half ago from New York. I had gone out to New Delhi maybe about three years ago to speak at a show they did about art that was developed by artists that used artificial intelligence at a medium. And I just stayed in touch, and they, they asked me maybe nine months or a year ago if I had anything I'd be interested in showing. So it, it kind of came together uh, just this past week. For anybody who doesn't know, Nature Mort is a really pioneering gallery. It's one of the greatest galleries in India. It was started by this guy, Peter Nagy, an artist, founded it in the East Village, and then moved it to New Delhi, where it became one of India's most important contemporary art galleries. I'm honored because, you know, the roster is exclusively Indian or South Asian. I'm probably the first out of that region to join them maybe since they moved there, maybe 20-something years ago. That's remarkable. It's also notable because for a lot of people, they probably know you best as the founder and now chairman of Kickstarter, the hugely successful crowdfunding platform. But you've always been doing art interwoven into your work in this more business tech side. So can you talk us through the arc of your artistic journey? How did you start getting into art and how did this kind of evolve alongside what you've been doing with Kickstarter? 
music was first for me. I was born in, in New York City. I was born in 76, so I was kind of, my brain was coming online in the 80s. And so I grew up with the rise of hip hop, which was my first love. And so, you know, I didn't really have a sense of fine art. To me, there was music. It wasn't until probably I came back to New York after university, I went to school in New Orleans. And I ended up opening an art gallery with two friends of mine. So there was a gallery, South First, that was open in Williamsburg for probably 20 years. And I was only there for the founding and the first few shows. And then I moved back to New Orleans to focus on music. But in those first few shows, we had a project space. And so the main shows were being curated by Micah Pollock, uh, one of my co-founders upstairs. And then the downstairs show we used as a project space. And so I, I developed two different installations. And that was really my first foray into the, the art world. It's not even like I fully understood what was going on upstairs in the gallery. It was just a project with friends in old Williamsburg, you know, where you could still rent a storefront pretty cheap and just kind of experiment. I think that where I ended up finding art was when I think I understood the boundlessness of it. And what I mean is that a lot of the topics that I explore in my art you could certainly explore them academically or journalistically. But I think those have frameworks that are a little more set, sometimes very strictly. And to be able to explore them without the bounds of those formats is incredibly freeing, but it also is really helpful for me to learn more, which is ultimately what I'm trying to do, understand the world better. Understanding, I think, just the whole world of boundlessness that was possible in art that you wouldn't have understood in my situation where I was growing up, wasn't really exposed to fine art. I mean, I lived in New York City, so I wandered through the museums. I wasn't absorbing it. It wasn't until my early 20s living in Williamsburg and meeting more artists and then ultimately ended up opening this gallery that I understood that it could be whatever you made it. It's fascinating that you talk about how you use art as kind of a laboratory to puzzle through different topics. And You've spoken before about how your art is really inspired by the idea of complexity in the world. Can you explain a little bit what you mean when you talk about complexity? There's things in the world that we're trying to understand. There's these things that are on our mind about the world that, that we want to understand better. So I found myself drawn to technology. So the first work that I did was a project called Virus which was showing the computer code of four viruses. But this was in 2001. And at the time, we would watch TV, if you remember 20 years ago, and you'd have Dan Rather be like, you know, today the Michelangelo virus uh, caused $14 million in damage in banks in Europe and the US. And then they just move on to another story. And so I was like, what do we understand from this, right? There's no visuals. It's really almost like, just like, be afraid. It's not even that that intentionality, right, of the media and fear. Like, it was too complicated for them to explain. But it was news, so they had to tell us about it. But we all would sit there and be like, I don't know. What, what does that mean? Am I supposed to do something? Am I supposed to be afraid of something? So it just dawned on me, like, just to show it. Years later, do, getting back into doing visual art again and doing a project called Computers in Crisis about the Y2K phenomena, it kind of felt like I was trying to understand technology really the question I'm most drawn to is actually not specifically about technology, but about the complexity of our world, which technology plays a large role in. 
And once I saw that, I think I started to look for it more and try to understand it more. And this project with Nature and Work Gallery, the show, was me kind of trying to fully dive in and ask the question, how do we negotiate a world of growing complexity? There's complexity sciences, um, which is a relatively new field, 30, 40 years or so, but just the science of complexity, whether it is in anything, whether it's in the weather or in cells or these fundamentals, there are what are called complex systems. And you quickly understand by reading this stuff that it's all complex systems, right? Our cells, ecosystems, our social systems, our financial markets. And the world we live in is just a big complex adaptive system. And it's just an aggregate of countless complex adaptive systems. And in a way, we have to know that this is what it is, it all is, and then ask ourselves, what are the fundamentals? Each piece in the show is named after one of these fundamentals, and then the corresponding podcast is exploring those themes, like the one you heard with Walter Isaacson called We Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, which is really trying to look into the fact that the acceleration of scientific and technological change is only going to continue. And we need to accept that at a certain level. You have machine learning and artificial intelligence. And so people ask, should we be making this? Is it ethical? Can we stop it? And these are all important questions, but what's critical is we don't get caught in these questions. Because let's say deep fakes, photorealistic video, a video of anybody looking like they're saying anything. And again, when deepfakes has started to come on the horizon in the last few years, we ask, should we be making it? Is it ethical? Can we stop it? And it's not to say that we shouldn't ask those questions, but we need to also go beyond that and ask other questions about what happens if these things come despite the ethics of creating them, despite our desires to uh, suppress them. Because there's really not a lot of evidence that you can suppress technology. And then also like these prohibitions around technology have also don't have a great track record. Walter finished a book that's coming out in the next few months on uh, Jennifer Doudna, who's the co-inventor of CRISPR. This question obviously very quickly is about the ability for us to do gene editing, which is happening in some of the COVID vaccines, and then potentially for a myriad of ailments and diseases. And then, of course, the question is, how far will people go? Will there be designer babies and all these other things? And where does your heart go? Immediately, you're like, is that okay? Should people be doing that? Uh, you know, can we stop it? And again, good question. But is the technology replicable enough, cheaply made enough, understandable enough that ultimately we're going to have to realize that we have to play out if it's not something that could be prohibited and just understand what that might be like. It seems that within here, you've got, let's say maybe like there are three layers that we're dealing with. And, I, you know, there's nobody in the world right now who is not acquainted with the terrifying profusion of complexity because we're all embedded in these complex systems, you know, like the digital technology, geopolitics, global economics, these things that we live in. And that's kind of like the domain of academics to understand and explain these systems. And then we're also facing these incredibly complex problems from the pandemic to political instability, climate change, rampant inequality, 
And that seems like it's the domain of politicians, potentially, or people who are trying to come up with solutions. And then you've got this whole other realm of complex threats on the horizon, like the gene editing, artificial intelligence. There's been talk about some astrophysicists and astronomers predicting that there's going to be contact with alien life forms within the next couple of decades. And this is like the kind of the realm of, of philosophers, you know, where, are you drawn to the systems, the problems, or the threats, or do you see it in a different kind of way? I'm drawn to this because in thinking about the problems of today and thinking about the problems of the future, this is constantly where I end up, even if I start in different places. I've kind of forced myself to, to dive into something that it would quite opaque to me at the beginning because... I realized this is really where, where my questions were coming from. When I'm thinking about it, I'm always trying to pull it back in my mind to just like, it's about a better world, right? It's about a better society. I don't bring a doom and gloom sense to it. I, I think that the more we can understand, the better we can make decisions and do things. We are going to have to make decisions and do things anyway. I have a bone in me that's solution oriented, which I don't try to wear that hat in the part of my work that I would say is my quote-unquote studio practice. There's this quote from Chekhov that I love, which says, the artist's role is to ask questions, not give answers. We have like answers coming out of Google left and right. And of course, with, with machine learning and all this kind of computational power that will try to seek the answers for the questions we ask, but are we up to the task? And how can we become better at asking the right questions? The closest thing I found to kind of like how we might do things better, was framed by Danny Hillis, who was a pioneer of parallel computing, and I interviewed him a few times. And he talked about long-term thinking, not long-term planning, as being how we have to think about things. And so the point is, is that long-term planning is based on prediction. So we expect these things to happen, and so here's our five-year plan, 10-year plan, 20-year plan. Long-term thinking understands how bad our ability to predict things is. It's less about planning and more about designing systems with flexibility so that they're flexible to multiple outcomes, including unpredictable ones. And so that is kind of like a potential way, a rubric, a high-level one of like w what we may need to, to do and, and what kind of thinking and designs of systems would have better prepared us for... COVID. People talk about looking at systems in nature as systems that we should study. They're not trying to predict things. They are flexible. Of course, they've adapted over the course of thousands of years or millions of years, potentially. I feel like that we have three natures. We have mother nature, we have human nature, and then we have a man-made nature. And man-made nature would be all the technology we've created. And Mother Nature and the systems that have evolved in Mother Nature, including, including us, have evolved over long periods of time through the kind of randomness they've built up over just this super long periods of time, the ability to withstand stresses and to be flexible and to be robust and, and, and as some Nicholas Taleb would call anti-fragile, right? Things that even get better from small problems. You know, if we look at any man-made system now that we might be like, this is really messed up, right? It could be financial system. It could be 
even democracy, right? It's maybe with language, we're further along. Maybe with certain social systems, we're further along. But with, with kind of industrial revolution stuff and digital revolution stuff, you know, we're in the early stages of this stuff. And we may need to have other ways of negotiating these things other than just like waiting the really long time for the Darwinian processes, for these systems to work themselves out. How do you see the kind of art and the long-term thinking, you know, the kind of the not planning, but thinking that art brings to the table? How does that fit into dealing with complexity? Since we've cataloged a lot of art uh, and human history decently well, I think that we can look to it to like see what is essential, right? What, what are those things that kind of kept occurring? What are the themes that kept happening? This is an interesting part of thinking about systems because while there is, and this is the title of my show, Perpetual Novelty, complex systems have perpetual novelty. It's an inherent characteristic. The history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, right? There are these things that I guess we would sometimes call universal truths of the human experience, but it may be also of social human systems. You know, we ask ourselves, like, is the tribalism that we see exhibited inherent, right? The tribalism has kind of been a pejorative term recently because we use it to talk about political things. But I think it'd be hard to argue that we're not tribal as a species. We just are. The question is maybe, when do we go to tribalism and when does it pull us in a dangerous direction? So I think art is an incredible document and reference for that. This sets the table very nicely to drill down into your show. As you said, it's called Perpetual Novelty. It consists of six artworks. Can you go into describing one of these artworks and how it helps you to channel your investigations around all these things that you've been discussing? So once I kind of had these six fundamental concepts, I started to work on trying to find the essence in a visual way. I'm not somebody who comes from an academic background. I don't love reading dense academic material. I'm certainly not trying to create that, especially in my art practice. I'm seeking to be visceral. I want people to be able to engage with something. I want it to be accessible. I want to open up people's curiosity. This is all archival imagery. So I went back and it was just spent a long time in archives photos, illustrations, books, scientific material, etc. And I ended up finding two images for each piece and printing one image on paper and then another on glass that's overlaid. And then next to those, there's another frame for each piece, which has a little bit of text, which I was really trying to find an economy of words. On the left-hand side, there is a large image. And inside this image, you have an old print of a Gutenberg printing press. And then superimposed on it are images of three figures looking at a document that has just come off the printing press. And then there's also a woman off to the left who is dressed like a professional office worker of the 1950s talking to some other figures that seems to be drawn from a print from a much earlier era. What the combination is, a print of Gutenberg taking the first proof off the printing press 
And the ENIAC computer, which is a, a groundbreaking computing machine in computer science, and two of the women that were programmers on the ENIAC. Here I'm trying to bring in these like two moments of big change. The change and the impact of the printing press are so profound. And it's funny because when you think about technology, the wheel is technology, language is technology, the printing press is technology. And it profoundly shifted our world. Now, when we think about technology, we think about our phones, we think about gene editing, machine learning, artificial intelligence, all these things. And in a way, we think we're like, oh, technology, I wish I could just sit down with a book. But of course, the book is technology and radical technology of half a millennia ago. But we have to remember at the time, people were terrified of the printing press, of the book. It was going to change society. And it did. They were right. It will destroy our traditions of oral storytelling. And they were right. And it did. What is different from the fears that the people then had and the fears we have of our technology? My argument is not that the technology we have is good or that the printing press is bad, but it's more to step outside of our myopic view and see that what happens with technologies is that the book is not radical to us. It's always been here for us. The change is what is upsetting. <laughs> and underneath this is how adaptable we are. As you see this generation now growing up with technology being more digital native, but it's still early on. I mean, I think probably if you were born 20 years after the book, it was still wild times. People were just banning books and things you shouldn't print. And But in a hundred years, you know, when the kinks are worked out, when it's fully socialized, you know, we're not asking these questions about the telephone anymore, about the photograph. And so there is a lot to work out. And we, we need to keep kind of trying to shape these technologies in our lives. Full stop. 100%. However, we also are served well, I think, by going back and thinking about the history of technology and how hard it is when you are at a time that we are now of radical technological change to be in the time of the change, to be in the time of the newness, when these things are just figuring themselves out and we're the guinea pigs, we're the first generation, the second generation, is very, very challenging time. And I think to pull it back to this piece, you know, I thought about how radical it must have felt for Gutenberg to bring the printing press to life and change the world. But could he even have imagined what computing was going to do? No, it's impossible. And so can we imagine what's coming? I think it's quite impossible. And so if we understand, maybe we can't plan what cannot be predicted. We can move away from the hubris of believing we can predict things and then see if we accept that we can't. How do we then negotiate the world? This is great because this is a really interesting instance of a complex artwork tackling a very complex subject. You know, some people go into a gallery, you know, they might look at this on the wall and kind of feel befuddled. They may pick up on some elements, maybe put some connections together, or, you know, maybe they'll go on a wild goose chase. Me and, and our listeners, obviously, we have the great benefit of having you walk us through the piece. But for somebody who doesn't have that benefit, does making art about complex issues 
make the issues easier to understand? Does it make it more fun for the viewer to understand? Or is there a different operation going on? I love this question. Two things. One is that it's integral in my better understanding of these issues. And so in some ways, you can look at these works as my research notes, references for me to try to stare into the depths of the problem in, in a way that is not overly encumbered by words. To the point of the viewer, it is definitely on my mind. And I think that with complex issues, they're very impenetrable for people. We have an endless amount of complex issues right now in the world, and it's honestly very easy to check out of a lot of them. I would say that finding ways for complex things to be accessible to people is really important. And so this is one effort to do that. I'm seeing if the way I distill this down for my own accessibility can also create an access point for the viewer, which is, again, why I'm choosing an economy of words and trying to use imagery. But I don't neglect words. You know, each one of these, I have some text. And even the text itself is, is, is archival because I wanted to give people just enough to provoke some interest or some resonance. You know, I, if somebody hears, we cannot plan what cannot be predicted, I think for many people, there's something in their experience where they'd be like, that's, that's for damn sure. So maybe enough clues in there to walk away where this lingers in your mind. I find it fascinating what you're talking about, how these artworks that you're creating are a sense for you to grapple with issues and think through the implications. And it reminds me, obviously, this is kind of a, a grandiose comparison, but Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks, because here's an artist who makes his devotional paintings. They're incredibly beautiful. They're groundbreaking. But he's also using his notebooks to, you know, make drawings about the movement of water or the way that, you know, the body works or his speculations about flying machine could evolve. And, and Leonardo was both an artist, but he was also a scientist and, and an actual, you know, a builder of real, you know, of war weapons and et cetera, et cetera. And it makes me wonder, how does your art connect to what you're doing at Kickstarter? And is there a way in which the things that you are working through in the art will someday maybe be evidenced in business? There's no lines. I think Da Vinci is a canonical example because I think it would be kind of funny if you asked him, are you an artist? Are you an inventor? Are you an artisan? He's just him. And I think this is true about a lot of creative people. And I think we tend to put people in boxes and then sometimes you find yourself in a box and, and maybe you stay there. But I don't think these boundaries exist because of the position that I'm in. I've had so many artists over the years come to talk to me about their ideas that use technology or that, that would be online. You know, these things just they come to people and, you know, maybe somebody wouldn't consider that fitting into their artistic practice, but it doesn't mean that that's not something that comes into the head of an artist or on the other side, uh, somebody in technology to do something that might be considered art. So I think that for me, I feel that I approach things as an artist. And what I mean by that is that outside of the strictures of other practices, with just a blue sky, 
I can pursue something that I'm interested in, in any form, in any context. And to me, that's approaching it as an artist. And so certainly in the creation of Kickstarter, in designing the governance of Kickstarter, and in things I'll do in the future, either through Kickstarter as the chairman, or more likely just other projects that I pursue uh, separately, I'm still going to be myself and I'm still going to approach things in that way. We're trying to be unbounded, trying to get to the essence of what I'm trying to do, not trying to be boxed in by the strictures or the standards of what I'm doing. To make that real, for example, in internet companies, it's standard to take a lot of data from users. We, we don't do that at Kickstarter. I was never interested in doing it. Same with advertising. We don't do advertising. We're, we don't want to sell. We don't want to IPO. So we're trying to build something for the very, very long term, which is complex because how do you build something that it's not just you're trying to keep alive for five or 10 years so you can sell to somebody else and it's their problem. How does something exist over the long term? So you can start to see the ties between the work that we're talking about, the show Perpetual Novelty and these themes and other things I've worked on and the problems that I'll deal with at Kickstarter and other things. So there are businesses in Japan that have been open for a thousand years. Rare. I mean, rare, but fascinating. What does it take for that to happen? And I think that's a good tie back because they generally tend to be small, family-owned and operated enterprises. Simplicity, I think, is key. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring that up because we're talking about complexity, is that I think one of the things that this project has made me think deeply about is this question of, can we continue to solve the problems of complexity? And you could insert technology there if you want as just another way to think about it. Can we continue to solve the problems of technology that we create with our technology with more technology? Or as I'm thinking about it now, can we continue to solve the problems of complexity with more complexity? We do a very good job of innovating our way out of things, right? So if we are having truly an electric car, the solar powered revolution now, we're going to be able to move away from fossil fuels. Through that, we're, say, solving a problem that we created with the technology of pulling this energy out of the ground and putting it into these cars and polluting our environment with technology. And we may do that very well. And it seems like we always have gotten ahead of it, which is why you have some people who are more optimistic about climate change. What I'm wondering is that, is that something that can happen perpetually? Can we always do that? Or is there some sort of debt that exists from complexity itself? Another thing, which is maybe the most important one, is that what I realize now, and especially in the past few years, we're living at a time of really low social trust. In America, the polling on social trust is really terrible. And what I think happens is that complex systems have tremendous debt in times of low trust. When the iPhone first came out, maybe it was magic, but now we all look at these things being like, this thing is probably doing things under the hood with my information that I don't even know about. Simplicity is a lot more robust in times of low trust because at least people can have a better sense of looking at it and understanding it. I'm trying to also put out there and understand from people who may be way more advanced in these topics than I am, but can we keep solving the problems of complexity with more complexity? And is there some sort of debt inherent with complexity in relationship to human understanding that we need to wait when we devise things? And 
my gut tells me that we need to try to ensure that the systems we create are the simplest forms they can be while still having the nuance that they need. We need to be really on top of the complexity fat that should be trimmed out of things that aren't really adding anything that just gets the vestigial complexity. I mean, this has been totally fascinating. I, I think I'd be remiss not to ask about Kickstarter because Kickstarter is a pretty relatively simple solution to the very complicated challenge of the creative economy, how to channel funding to worthy projects in a time where federal funding is largely fading away, et cetera, et cetera. And now, obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic where creatives are more vulnerable than they have been in, I don't know, any, any time in my memory. So how is it faring in the pandemic? How has it been impacted? We're oh, 11 or so years old now, so kind of old now in the internet age. As you say, it's pretty simple, right? We provide a tool, and when people need to raise money for creative projects, we're there. And I think you're right, at a time like now, there are a lot of people that need that. You know, for example, if you're in the performance sphere and like there's no real live stuff and maybe you might have translated your work to the digital space as best as you can, but you're really waiting for the world to reopen. I also expect that a lot of people will be looking for funds for their projects as we get a better sense of things reopening again. And we're very happy to be there. There's a real understanding on the public side of the challenges for artists and creators at a time like this. But the other, the other side of it, I'll say, is that, you know, it came out of music and art, and then I went into making Kickstarter, having no idea what I was getting into or how long it would be. And after almost a decade doing that, I stepped out and I went back in the studio in 2014 and started getting back in the flow of being in my studio. Really, it was almost like my first real time fully dedicating myself to art and really learning to identify with my practices outside of music or Kickstarter. And then I went back to Kickstarter for a few years, but I was really back there kind of just to, to help out, to get it from a kind of a point A to a point B, bring a new leader on. And I never expected to go back. It was kind of shocking to go, go from my studio where I had one part-time studio manager assistant back to a company with uh, over 100 people. And so it's been now, again, almost two years since I stepped away. I moved away as well. I'm in Paris. I'm kind of at the board level now where I'm like, catch up once a month, board level every three months. Now I'm actually on paternity leave. So I say all this because I think that I'm attached to it. It's a, such an important thing to me. And as best I could help steward it and contribute to it, I want to always do that. But it's also important for me to throw myself into the depths of these other practices. And you have these projects that take on a life of their own that don't have an end date, potentially. How do you relate to those things? Hank Willis Thomas has, you know, built up Four Freedoms, which is kind of a continuing thing. You know, Theaster Gates has a myriad of projects going on in Chicago that are ongoing things. Uh, we're all learning, I think, how we do new things, how we honor the things that we've built where we can still contribute, and how we fit all these things together to move forward and to find whatever the new things are that are most important to us. I find that for artists, especially for these things that may live for a long time, the early parts tend to be the things that are most resonant with our other art practices we have, which may be more about a project. Those parts feel like the most 
like art, you know, when you are designing something from scratch to actualize something. And then you learn how to be a parent or really a steward beyond that, because that's the best thing for that is not to be a project. Potentially, it's to be something that is ongoing, that other people start to steward with you, potentially take over one day. I've thought many a lot about this idea of projects and organisms. Projects are these things like, like these artworks that I have for the show and other artworks I've talked about today. And an organism is, is something that has no end date. It's indefinite. It might end tomorrow. It might last a long time. And now when I get ideas for things, the first thing my mind does without me thinking is like, is it a, a project or an organism? Because if it's an organism, there's only a small handful of those you want to do each lifetime. And the last point is that with projects, you can have real full authorship every detail you can control. This is the expression exactly how I want it. Or you can try with an organism, maybe at the beginning, that's how it is, but that's not how it's going to always be. It's a fascinating relationship. It's like with a child, you learn the relationship to have where you don't have that control you might have fully as an artist, making a painting, making a film, making, making a song. You have to learn that. You have to learn how you, you relate to that. What a great way of looking at it. And so you've got a new project up in your show. You've got a new organism coming with your baby. Do you see any any other organisms on the horizon that you're actively thinking about taking on in the coming years? Um, you know, yeah. I think I want to start a lab. So I'm calling it the Le Laboratoire de la Complexité et de la Simplicité because I'm now in France. But the lab of complexity and simplicity. And, you know, now that we've had this conversation, I think you could kind of see why. I feel in a way that the kind of investigations that we talked about is diving into complexity. And then I think things like Kickstarter and, and some other of the art projects I've done are more about simplicity in a way. And so these feel like really good headers for things that I'm really drawn to. And so you know, I want to make it as like a studio, as like a home to do projects, to do books, to do a journal, to commission research from other people and to make artwork and maybe to make applications like digital tools as well that help solve things. Not necessarily companies, maybe they, they will organismize. So that's something that's really been pulling at me. And I'm spending this time just with my two week old and pushed a lot off the calendar for a while, really just thinking about getting this going. And so that's potentially on the horizon. I mean, that sounds like an incredibly good idea. It sounds like a really valuable contribution to all of the different things that you've been engaged with. I'm really excited to see what happens there. Yeah, me too. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been really great. My pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.